I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to Livewire Radio. I'm backstage here at Mississippi Studios. Uh, in Portland, I just realized something. The house band is starting the music. I am supposed to go out on stage right now. I'm looking at this clock, which says that it's five minutes to showtime, but now I'm looking at my watch and I'm realizing the clock on the wall in this room is five minutes slow. So I'm going to have to hustle, but let me tell you what the show is going to be about. Uh, our theme is making history because there's some historic stuff going on in this country. Uh, for instance, there are now more unmarried women than married women in the United States the first time that has ever happened and a woman named Rebecca Traster has written a fascinating book about what this means the book is called all the single ladies so we'll talk to her we've also got Ruth Goodman here who is a historian British history is her specialty and we've got some amazing music it's all coming up as soon as I go out on that stage right now from PRI public radio international it's Recorded in front of a live audience at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with author Rebecca Traster, historian Ruth Goodman, music from the last Artful Dodger, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. If history repeats itself, after tonight's show, he'll be back at the hotel room eating burritos and his feelings. Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here to Mississippi Studios. We have a great show in store for you. Our theme this week is making history. And we're actually making history on this episode of Livewire because for the first time in 306 episodes of this show, all of our guests are women. Um, of course, uh, this week was International Women's Day. And uh, my plan was to come out here on the stage and explain to you that I had carefully booked all of these guests to perfectly dovetail with that day of the year. And then the producers of Livewire, uh, who are primarily women, said, you can't do that because A, we booked the guests. <laughs> and B, it's just happenstance that it was this week. You can't go out there on stage and claim credit for something you didn't do. So I had to sort of take a moment with them and I... I looked him right in the eye, and I said, 
when is the last time a white guy did something like that? Which I think made my point. And then I carefully mansplained for about two hours why my ideas are awesome. Another productive Livewire staff meeting, thanks to this guy. Uh, one of the other guys on our show is announcer Jason Rouse. And Jason, I understand that you've been doing some prep this week because one of our guests is a historian, Ruth Goodman, who is yeah. an expert in the Tudor yeah. era. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't know you were actually going to dress the part. Can you please <laughs> describe for the radio audience what the hell you're wearing? I'm wearing a simple Tudor era bonnet and tunic. Um, I would be, I suppose, in, in that time, I would be lower down on the food chain. I would, certainly wouldn't be nobility or gentry or even really a yeoman. I'm probably a sturdy vagabond at this point. <laughs> can you please stand up quickly so the live audience in Mississippi Studios can see your outfit in all of its grandeur? I, I want to describe for the... It's, it's like you have a, a, like a, a, a Nerf Frisbee on your head, yeah. and then you're dressed like a playing card. Yeah, pretty much. Jokers are always wild tonight. So we're... How did you figure out where you would be in the sort of hierarchy of Tudor times? How did you find out that you would be a sturdy vagabond? The, I really don't have any skills to be a, no, a noble person. Um, but, and I also actually don't have the skills to be a sturdy vagabond, it, it turns out, either. So I'd probably be dead uh, really quick. I probably wouldn't last very long. But I was good. I could make a fire, and I kept myself alive for 24 hours. So I felt pretty good about that. While you were trying to live like a tutor, you, you yeah, managed to stay it alive. An, it wasn't awesome, by any means. It was not fun at all. So All right. Uh, we're going to get a real expert out a little bit later on, Ruth Goodman, and uh, we're going to get her take on your time living as a tutor this week here in Portland, Oregon, yep. Jason. Uh, first of all, let's get Rebecca Traster out here. For the first time in American history, unmarried women outnumber married women in this country. Talk about uh, making history. The implications of that are the subject of Rebecca Traster's fascinating and meticulously researched new book, all the single ladies, unmarried women, and the rise of an independent nation. She's here to talk about it. Please welcome Rebecca Traster to Livewire. <laughs> welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. This is great. This book is is fascinating and uh, so meticulously researched. You you interviewed all these people, but you write at the beginning of the book that when you were a kid, it really bummed you out when your literary heroines got married in yeah. the books. Yeah. Why? Because it was the end of the story. I mean, it was. I write in the book about Laura Ingalls Wilder and Anne Shirley and Joe March and how you were supposed. There were supposed to be these happy endings, right? The happy ending, in children's in children's contexts, uh, is marriage. And when I was a kid, I would, you know, the moment that they got married, that meant that all the books were over, all their adventure was over, all the possibility was over. And I was incredibly depressed by this. Even I've tried to go back and think about how old I was when I remember feeling like. This is such a bummer. Like when Laura married Almanzo, you probably don't. Of course, that. Manly. Yeah, manly, Manly Wilder. Listen, I have four sisters <laughs> and, a, and a heart. <laughs> right. I watched a, watched a lot of Little House. Right. We used to, 
My mom would cry at the end of every episode of Little House, and we would yell as kids, you love Michael Landon more than Daddy! <laughs> so I had my own stuff going on with that series. Um, but yeah, no, it, was, it meant that the stories were over, and in part that's because those books, kids' books, coming-of-age books, are, are about coming-of-age. But for women, coming-of-age, becoming adults, meant marriage, which for many of them, if the stories were about adventure and forward motion and education and goals and ambitions and behaving badly, that all ended when, when marriage came, and then they became adults. And for so many generations and so much of this country's history, and, and of course around the world this has been true too, marriage has been the institution that both kicks off adulthood for women and, then, and on which they are dependent economically, socially, sexually, if they want to have a family. And it's also the institution that's really contained them. Um, and that was, you know, that was there even in those kids' books. Um, and then I, I understand that you were reading uh, this book to your daughter, and you had like an additional revelation about right. this. Right, well, this is the thing. So I remember as a kid being incredibly bummed out um, when, for instance, Laura Ingalls got married. And, and when I was writing this book about how now women aren't getting married in the same patterns or in the same numbers anymore, that was one of the, it was one of the first sentences I wrote of the book was the first sentence, which I always hated it when my heroines get married. And I, and I wondered, how do, why did I feel that way so strongly even when I was, whatever, eight or nine? I now have a five-year-old daughter. We're reading her the Little House books. And this book that I'd written was finished. It was to the publisher. It was printed. And we got to a place in sort of the seventh book of the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. And Laura Ingalls is about 10 or 11 years old. And there's a scene where she's riding with horses with her cousin, Lena. And they go and they visit a woman on the prairie. And the woman is depressed and overworked. Why? Her daughter's left her. She got married yesterday. She was 13 years old. And there is this devastating scene where Laura and her cousin look at each other and they go silent. And they, the idea that someone just a couple years older than they has just gotten married is terrifying to them. And they talk about it. There's this whole page where they talk about, I don't want to stop playing. She's just a little older than us. And they are talking about marriage as this as this terrifying end to their childhood, to their fun, to their pleasure. And I had no memory of that scene from reading it when I was a little kid, though obviously I'd absorbed it. But it helped me understand why by the time Laura eventually does get married, even as a child, I was like, ooh, I don't know if this is such a great thing. Uh, we're talking to Rebecca Traster. Her new book is All the Single Ladies. Let's talk about the numbers. Um, so. On average, what age are women now waiting till to get married? And also, how many women are, are choosing to be single these days? Well, the, the marriage age thing is pretty interesting because it was a pretty straight line for as long as they measured it. They started measuring in 1890. I think we can presume that these numbers also applied to before then, too. From 1890 to 1980, the median age of first marriage hovered just between 20 and 22. That was the only fluctuation. So that was it. That was the marker. That was the beginning of adulthood for women marriage. Um, in, in 1990, it jumped to over 23. Today, it's over 27, but it's much higher than that in many cities, over 30 in many places across the country. So that is an additional five to 10 years of adult womanhood now spent outside of the institution that used to so completely define it. And so what are the implications of that 
Uh, I'll start by asking socially, what are the implications of that? They're huge. You have women living more sexually liberated lives. You have women spending more time in the workforce, um, earning more money, <laughs> um, having a kind of enjoying kind of unprecedented social equality. Women and men living as peers in workplaces, as friends, drinking beers together, having sex with one another without necessarily being bound to each other for the next 50 years legally. <laughs> um, you have a redefinition of families. They're having children outside of marriage is increasingly a norm across classes. Um, for women under 30, uh, more than half of first births are outside of marriage now. It is increasingly becoming um, one of the many ways to have a family. Um, so you have this tremendous redefinition of, of when family happens, because of course women are also having children later than ever before. Um, so it's basically, it is a, it's a revolution as far as how this country is organized, because for hundreds of years, our social and economic policies were built around the idea that Americans were paired off in these hetero units, and that there was one member of that unit who did the earning and was in public and professional life, and there was, and that was a man, and there was his mate was, did the domestic labor, unpaid, and enabled his participation in the public sphere. And that is not how we're organized anymore. That's not, people may be living in those pairs, but they're doing it, you know, more rarely than ever before, and they're spending lots and lots of their lives outside of those pairs. And we don't actually have the social and economic policies to support this new organization of our population. I heard you uh, in an interview talking about how your parents were both uh, academics and kind of intellectual equals, mm -hmm. but your mom still ended up doing the lion's share of the domestic work. Is that still something that is going on even in 2016, women picking up most of that sort of slack? Well, it, it, all kinds of research shows that that still is the pattern. Women do more domestic work, but it's changing. It's actually, it's actually changing you know, comparatively swiftly if you compare it to the past hundreds of years. Um, and I think one of the reasons is the delay of marriage, so that you have men and women living independently for some number of years or for all of their lives. And that means both women moving into that public sphere and being professionals and earning money, it also means men learning how to cook their own breakfasts and do their own laundry. And so if and when they partner, um, married or not, those domestic tasks aren't necessarily going to fall along the old gendered lines that they used to. Um, so I think it's one of the things that's moving us closer to domestic inequality, is the idea that we're both, both genders are learning to take care of themselves and to participate in spheres from which they had been barred until pretty recently. Uh, Rebecca, we've got to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about the misconceptions around the book, because mm. I feel like uh, it's, first of all, it's really touched a nerve. I think there's a, clearly a, a real interest in this, but then it's, I think, also been misinterpreted a lot as being anti-marriage in some way. Uh, so let's get into that in a moment. We have Rebecca Traster here. Her new book is all The Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation. This is Livewire Radio, back in just a moment. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asks, did you ever wonder why your most brilliant ideas seem to surface while you're running or surfing or dancing? It's because your body was designed to move. And at Ergo Depot, they encourage that by creating amazing products like chairs, stools, and stand-up desks that encourage your body to do what it was meant to do. Visit them online at ergodepot.com to check out their full line, including the Jarvis stand-up desk. 
Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We are here with Rebecca Traster. Her new book is All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation. I feel like I cannot turn on my internet without seeing an interview with you. You had a huge write-up in the New York Times. You've been sort of everywhere with this book. It seems like it really has hit a nerve. Why do you think that's the case? Well, because I think this is a massive rupture in... in how we view women in this country and how we're organized and how people are actually living versus the expectations for how we've lived for much of our history. And that there has there there have been other people who have written about this, but the reason but not enough. There hasn't been enough of a careful examination. Of Although I was cur I was surprised to read in the book that this was a message that was out there to some degree, like Susan B. Anthony wrote about this. Like it seems like this would have been so controversial a hundred years ago to say, we really should all stop being married. I feel like that could get a person thrown in jail. Yeah, in no, like it was all over 1900s. the press in the 19th century. It surprised me too. When I started to write the book, I thought it was going to be just about this contemporary uh, shift in marriage patterns. And it turned out that in the 19th century, um, when so many men moved west, uh, and so many men were killed during the Civil War, there were a ton of women left on the East Coast without men to marry. And when there were no men to marry... Uh, a lot of middle-class white women whose lives were suddenly unburdened um, from the, you know, the responsibilities of wifeliness and maternity um, turned their attentions to, you know, kind of revolutionary reform movements like abolition and suffrage and the temperance movement, which, you know, we're a little iffier on, and uh, <laughs> the labor movement. It was unmarried young women in, in the mills and factories who staged some of the first walkouts and strikes of the labor movement. Um, unmarried women in the 19th and early 20th century actually had really worked to reshape the nation. And that kind of prefigures, I think, what we're living through now, which is a much larger population, a much larger behavioral shift, of course, because now, after second wave feminism, um, there's so much more economic possibility and sexual liberty that can foreground independent lives outside of marriage for women. So you say in the book that essentially when women are kind of left uh, more or less alone, or at least allowed to not get caught up in marriage, <laughs> things really improve. Yes. Should we get rid of it's the true. dudes? I mean, how much longer do we dudes have? Five years? Ten years? I'm going to say, I'm going to give you like 50, really. All right, I'll take they, it. Because progress takes time. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, fascinatingly, Susan B. Anthony, and I, I had no idea when I started this book that this history existed, and, and it, it winds up threading throughout the book, which is why it took me five years to write. Um, but Susan B. Anthony actually predicted that before we got to an imagined age of gender equality in the future, we would have to live through an epoch of single women. She predicted that, and, and it kind of, her speech, in, which she gave in 1877, kind of makes it sound like it might be a temporary thing, but that we have to live through an era in which we stop marrying in order to fully adjust our attitudes about gender and equality. And so... Well, do you think that is going to happen? Like, what will marriage... You've studied this extensively. As you said, it took you five years to write this book. Um, 
what's marriage going to look like in in a hundred years? I think it's going to be better. It's already better. We have gay marriage. That makes it better. This, right? Does that <laughs> does that make it better, well, or does it is, just rope gay people into the same well, bad deal? This is right. Yeah. No. That's that's one of the critiques, and I take it seriously. It's you know it's a valid argument that gay marriage just sort of reinscribes this traditional institution on people who had lived outside of it. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's a valid point. My argument is that. What you're doing, what gay marriage is part of, is the same thing that protracted and more frequent singlehood is part of, which is changing the the institution of marriage to actually make it better. And better for the people who do wind up wanting to participate in it. Making it not compulsory, first of all. Making it, uh, it, gay marriage helps redefine how the power structures work so that it's an institution that is not in part built around the subservience of one gender to another. When you have same-sex couples, you know, that's impossible. Of course, any relationship's always any any relationship is going to involve power imbalances and everything, but it doesn't make it, you know, determined by whether you're a man or a woman. So, um, yeah, I think we're in the process of improving it. I think I, I think that delaying marriage, in, in fact, there's a lot of evidence that people who marry later, and this is, and also there are many people who form wonderful and loving marriages early in life. The point of the book is is actually not that there's a binary between married life versus unmarried life. The point is once you remove that one model, the thing, the sort of highway down which so many women were hustled for so long, this one path. What you get is this huge divergence of paths, um, you know, an infinite variety of relationships, of combinations of love and work and family, and people move in all kinds of different directions around, you know, monogamy, around celibacy, cohabitation, promiscuity, same-sex relationships, hetero relationships, kids outside of marriage, late marriage, brief marriage, long-lasting marriage. You know, what you get is are just more options, and that's what women didn't have for centuries. I think to people who might interpret this as being anti-marriage as a book, it should be noted, you are married. I am married. And I am, I am like boring married. I'm straight married. I have two kids. <laughs> I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is like the- I can't believe the we epi- even invited you the, on the show, Rebecca. The epicenter <laughs> of like smug married. <laughs> um, I got married at 35. I write, the book is, I, there is some first person writing in the book and I tell my story, um, which ends with boring straight marriage in Park Slope. Um, But uh, I was single for four, I got married at 35. And part of what made me want to write this book is that in my single years through my 20s and into my early 30s, I was really single. I had sort of one eh, relationship. But I was, I was not in and out of monogamous relationships. I wasn't good at flings. I I lived like a nun. And, um, and I think it really, my identity was so connected to the fact that I was single. Um, and then when I got married in my mid-30s, I was like, wow, this is so different from my mother's marriage, which began when she was 21. I'm already an adult. I have a full life. This is not, this is not the start of my adulthood. I, my adulthood is in process, and I've built it around myself. Um, and I thought, this is, a, this is a new world in which women are having full lives outside of the institution that used to affirm their adulthood. Well, why even actually get married at this point, though? If you find somebody, you love them, why do we even have to do this this sort of formality? Well, the whole point is you don't. We, do, I mean, you don't have to get married. Um, why did I get married? Yeah. Honestly, because we wanted to have a party with our parents who are all still alive. <laughs> we were we we met. My husband's ten years older than I am. And, um, I mean, by the way, we also, you know, we wanted to get married. It was, you know, it, it, we were in love, and 
felt like a nice thing to do. We weren't anti-marriage. Um, but we were very aware of how lucky we were. I was 35. He was 45. Neither of, his, neither of us had really thought we were going to um, find each other. And we were aware that we had older parents who were, and all four of them were still alive. And they were really happy that we'd fallen in love and we wanted to have a party where they were all around and I'm really glad that we did because actually my my husband's mother passed away a few years ago and and you know we knew we had this we were lucky well I'm sorry to hear about his mother passing away but I'm okay. glad to hear you guys had a bitchin party we had a bitchin party <laughs> Rebecca Traster ladies and gentlemen the book is all the single ladies unmarried women in the rise of an independent nation thank you so much This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring high-quality meats that are free of antibiotics, added growth hormones, and animal byproducts in feed, because eating a hamburger shouldn't freak you out. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Livewire Radio, and uh, as we've mentioned, it was International Women's Day this week, and we really enjoyed reading all of the wonderful posts and stories online that were celebrating women, but there was this one site that one of our producers saw that was really confusing. And this website advertised women's personal defense weapons as part of the International Women's Day week. And we were trying to understand it, so we asked friend of the show, comedian Caitlin Warehouser, to do a little research on this and give us a report. Please welcome Caitlin Warehouser to Livewire. <laughs> Hi there, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Hi. Happy to be here. Uh, okay, so this website had a bunch of really weird items, and I just wanted to yeah. run through some of them, and you could kind of explain yeah. what you were able to figure out about them. Yeah. Because these are real things. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's start with the first one, which really caught my eye. Glitter mace. Yeah. <laughs> it's like our old friend pepper spray, or Satan's sneezes. Like, oh. <laughs> But there's been an addition, and it's uh, shards of shiny, shiny glass. <laughs> you know, like, like it's so it's it's glitter, be beautiful, but yeah. very, very dangerous. Exactly, like when your assailant just could get prettier. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it's actual glass. Yeah. Does it spray out of a tube, or do you blow it? Oh, see, the blowing method has never worked, and everyone knows that. It's been <laughs> yeah. at all attached their... to any kind of gay culture. You can't. It's not effective. <laughs> Mace, canister, aerosol. You know what I mean? It's pressurized. Yeah. It comes at them at a terrifying rate. Yeah. That sounds like a beautiful way to die. Exactly. All right. Um, what about uh, the original glitter mace? There's a branding thing here. So the pepper spray mace, but then there's also the antique, like, retro one, like the medieval, like, mace. Oh, like a spiky ball yeah, on a on the, chain. Yeah, exactly. And that is just covered in glitter. <laughs> Does it still have the spikes? Yeah, duh. Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, it's still like a weapon. Yeah. But you like... know, you know, there's a place in Portland that's like we make artisanal glitter maces in the original fashion. A guy wears like Point a leather. Me to them. He wears a leather apron. He has a mustache. Yeah. He rides a penny farthing bike to Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yeah. And just whacks people yeah. on the way. Um, there was something on there called nunchucks, like N-U-N chucks. Yeah. 
It's like a niche, like specialty item for sisters of wives of Christ or nuns. It's for okay. nuns. <laughs> it's weapons for nuns. And like the, you know, chain in between is the rosary beads and it's the whole thing. <laughs> Nunchucks. <laughs> for nuns. Right. Well, that pretty much seals the deal. We're not getting on Vatican radio. What about something called Mommy's Little Helper? Oh, this is great. It's a wonderful kit that we a lot of us actually probably already have, but it's like a beautiful little pairing because they're like co coordinated, but it's an aerosol hairspray and a beauty and lighter. Yeah. For, yeah. For throwing flame and shade. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You described... Uh, aside from getting my hands on a Playboy magazine, the reason my life existed at age 10 was to light Aquanet hairspray on fire. It's so fire. And burn things. <laughs> that was pretty much, that was 80% of my day. Right. How about the uh, cross my heart bow? Oh, this is my favorite one. <laughs> it's like a normal, like, crossbow. <laughs> but it's just been decorated with, like, an impossible amount of, like, ribbons and um, bows and, and butterflies. Yeah. Because, you know, if we don't hold our weapons to impossible beauty standards. <laughs> yeah. They'll just be functional. If these aren't real things, I feel like there's a market for this, Caitlin. Caitlin Warehouser, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Live Wire Radio. Brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. You know, Minneapolis, St. Paul, they're known as the Twin Cities. And Alaska Airlines is offering twice daily flights to and from Seattle. Coincidence? You decide. <laughs> Alaska is also offering a daily flight to and from Portland. You can learn more at alaskaair.com. We're talking about making history this week on the show, which is something our next guest knows all about. She is a British historian and an advisor to the BBC show Wolf Hall, her latest book is How to Be a Tutor. That's T-U-D-O-R. Please welcome Ruth Goodman to Livewire. Ruth Goodman, welcome to Livewire. Can you remind everybody like me, who maybe didn't know until they read the book, when exactly the Tudor oh, era was? Oh, no, you're not going to ask me dates, are you? Um, um, Henry VII's the first of the Tudors. He's about 1485, I think. He kills the previous king. And then Elizabeth, who's the last of the Tudors, she snuffs it in 1603. What about this period interested you? I mean, what my real question is, how can you not be interested, frankly? I mean, the clothes are great. The food's fantastic. It's really sort of amazingly exciting period of history in which everything changes. I mean, you know, what's not to like? Um, and I, they have ruffs. They have, they have what? <laughs> ruffs. What is ruffs? Oh, it's, you wear them around your neck. They're great. You can spend hours starching them. You're never, never bored when you've got a ruff to starch. <laughs> I feel like I'm interviewing a demented John Oliver. <laughs> You're never bored when you've got ruffs to starch. Is that short for ruffles? I don't know. What does ruffles mean? Well, uh, when I think of those kind of weird uh, necklaces or neck pieces that people oh, yeah, wear yeah, in the yeah, Tudor yeah, yeah. era. It's not short for ruffs. It's the proper word. You're using the wrong word. Okay. 
what was life like back then for, for these folks? Um, well, it sort of depended on who you were, obviously. Most people, okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, there were some hungry times and uh, there was a, quite a bit of disease going about with not a great deal of medicine, or at least a fair amount of medicine, but just not very much that would do you much good. Yeah, so. what, what would they do for you if you took ill during the Tudor times? <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the, the whole medical theory was based upon ancient Greek ideas. So the idea was that it was every living thing, be it a camel or a cabbage, or indeed your good self, was made of blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And in, in some sort of balance that was personal to you. So obviously, as a bloke, your balance would be completely different to my balance as a woman. Guys, I'm a bloke. <laughs> that... I feel a lot cooler I'm, I'm than I did before you, this interview started. I'm glad you do. And as a bloke, you are dominated slightly by the blood humour, which is what gives you your strength and your vigour. Whereas I, as a girl, sadly, am dominated by the phlegmatic humour, the phlegm, which makes me cooler and weaker and, and therefore just inferior in general to blokes. And this was the prevailing wisdom this was the prevailing the wisdom era. and sickness was some sort of imbalance in your humors and putting that right was about either taking one of them out getting rid of it so that's why you would do all that bleeding you know too much blood with leeches with and leeches lovely things leeches and um <laughs> they are they're really cute no, honestly, they are quite cute, and they don't hurt. Well, if you put, a, if you, if you try and get rid of blood any other way, it hurts like crazy. If you, if you either do it with a scalpel, you know, obviously, or you do that cupping thing where they, they make loads of little scratches in your skin and then put this huge sucking vacuum cup on it. I have no idea what you're out. doing in England on your off time, but it sounds terrifying. <laughs> Whereas leeches are lovely; you don't even feel it because they have a little bit of anesthetizing agent exactly. on their sharp, terrifying teeth. <laughs> So when they cut into you, you don't feel it. Can you uh, explain what... Uh, <laughs> by the way, we're, we're talking to Ruth Goodman. Her book is How to Be a Tutor. Could you explain to me what sumptuary laws were? Oh, well, that's rules about what you're allowed to wear and not allowed to wear. So it's more important for the people at the top end when the rules are really quite distinct and strict and it's, you know, exactly what colours and exactly what fabrics you can wear. But they do apply to some degree to the rest of us. So there were limits on the amount of money you were supposed to spend on cloth, for example. So if you were an ordinary bloke, you would be expected to wear a doublet or coat made out of something that costs no more than two shillings a yard. Because otherwise that was seen as excessive or not knowing yeah, your place? exactly. Both of those. Why were curtains such a big deal around <laughs> your bed. Well, that's, that's to keep you warm. You write that that was like the most coveted thing of that oh. era. Oh, well, well, you see, sleeping in a proper four-poster bed is really quite lovely. I mean, sometimes these days you could go to a hotel and they'll give you a, a sort of pretend four-poster bed, and that's nice enough. But what you have to imagine is that for an actual Tudor person, in a room with no glass in the windows, with temperatures that are quite similar to the ones you get here. Um, you know, it's pretty nippy. And also, there's not necessarily very much privacy, because lots of people might be sleeping in the same room. Um, there's no separation. It's not, like, it's not like that Downton Abbey lark in which the servants all go up in the um, attics. In Tudor Britain, you'd all be in the same room. So if you've got the curtains, you can pull them all the way around, you get a bit of privacy, and you keep all the drafts out. And it soon gets nice and warm and toasty in there. And then it's very comfy. You actually lived the part for a while, right? Mm. What was that like? 
good. Well, I enjoy it. I mean, it's hard at times. It can be physically quite exhausting, um, particularly dealing with the cold and the heavy manual labour. Um, and the strange sleeping arrangements. What exactly was the situation for you? Well, I've sort of been doing it as a hobby for 25, 30 years. Um, so you just take myself off to a museum with like-minded persons, and we live as Tudors, you know, you know. Like you do. Like you do. You know, somebody gives you a nice Tudor house, you just live in it, it's great. Um, and then about 10 years ago, the telly found me. And what, what was the worst part about Tudor life? You said the cold. Cold, cold. Oh, every time it's the cold. I hate being cold. And, you know, it's it, you're cold pretty much all the time. Yeah. What is uh, something from Tudor life that we actually would do better to embrace in 2016? Ooh. Uh, well, I have definitely given up almost every single household chemical. Um, because you just don't need it. It's all largely irrelevant. What I sort of first noticed when I was doing Tudor laundry, um, which... Wait a second. I'm sorry. You said Tudor laundry? Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to live it, you've got to wash your clothes, haven't you? I would, like, do the period thing, which is that you make a, a lye. You take wood ash and you pour water through it, and the liquid that comes at the bottom is quite a chemically strong... Um, alkaline, which dissolves grease. So you soak your dirty laundry in that, and then you haul it off down the river, and you beat the living daylights out of it with a big stick. <laughs> and you know what? It all comes incredibly clean. So I thought to myself, what, 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 why, if hitting it, just hitting it in water, cleans it once I've got a little bit of grease out, then what exactly is going on in a washing machine? That just hits it in water. So. I just put the washing in and didn't use any chemical at all. Just let it run on water. All comes out clean. Ten years later, still all clean. Wow. <laughs> so this outfit you're wearing tonight, which yep. I'll mention, is not Tudor because it has zebras on it, <laughs> which I don't think they probably even knew about back then. <laughs> this outfit was washed in your washing machine with no yeah, soap. Yeah, I, I haven't used any soap at all for ten years in it. I'm going to smell it. Come smell. It's actually very, very clean. <laughs> I'm impressed. Just the money you've saved on detergent must yeah, be. Yeah, I know. And you get to feel really smug as well, because you know, go, oh, I'm so eco-friendly, me. <laughs> uh, you are the, uh, you are a consultant for Wolf Hall. I was. What, what is that like? They just come to you and they say, like, would a guy wear that hat? <laughs> oh, it's even more fun than that. I, I worked for years um, as a consultant at the Globe Theatre in London. And we, I used to do lots of ad, you know, advice for actors that was mostly about physical movement, like how to stand, how to sit, how to when you take your hat off, when you put your hat on, how you take your hat off and put your hat on, manners for movement, what it all means, the sort of, you know, the, the, the cultural baggage that comes with it. What was the standing situation? Somebody that they would stand differently during yep, the Tudor era? Definitely. I mean, partly the clothes put your body into a different shape. So you, you're comfortable in different sorts of poses. But also there were fashions in the way people move. And even the simplest things like walking is actually culturally learned. It's not innate and natural. If you, if you are a person who people watches, I, I mean, I certainly can, and I'm sure anybody who just takes time to look can see, you can tell somebody's nationality by the way they walk. You can also tell sort of subgroups within a nationality. You feel currently, move. in 2016, you can pick this oh, up. Oh, definitely. And wh where does that come from? We learn the way we move from the people around us. We, you know, as small children, we're watching all the time, and we just unconsciously copy. And therefore, we learn a particular cultural way of moving, a particular cultural way of sitting 
And of course, that's always been the truth in history, just as it is geographically spread around the world. Who is the most arrogant walkers currently? <laughs> I, I'm going to assume the U.S. Worker. No, no, I reckon it's Italian blokes. <laughs> <laughs> Young Italian men, they really fancy themselves. <laughs> Who are the most humble walkers? Humble walkers. Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure. I noticed a new walk the other day that I hadn't spotted before, which I think is a particularly interesting one, and that's Sikh gentlemen. And I was walking behind one on, in, on the tube in London, and I thought, that's a you know, I've seen people moving like that. It's very, very distinctive. And I was trying to work out what is it that they do that's different. And it's really weird. It's very elegant walk. It's very upright and shoulders well back, very elegant, very smooth. And I realised that what they do is they move with their knees first. I know that sounds really weird, I'd have to sort of show you, but they sort of, like, instead of thinking it's my shoulders that go first or it's my toes that go first, it's all about knees. And it's a really, it's really distinctive one. I'm going to start doing that around Portland. I think you should. See if people notice. All right, Ruth. In honour of your visit and also your fascination and now our fascination with ancient cultures, uh, we decided to have our announcer, Jason Rouse, live like a tutor for a day. He did this for 24 hours, uh -huh. and he's got a full report for us. He is dressed in, uh, how would you describe, as an expert, Ruth, his, his tutor garb? I'd say that was a curtain, wouldn't you? Ruth? I'm a single man <laughs> with, with questionable living habits. I did the best I could. It's it feels, lovely. period. It's a Thank you. It's, no, not, it's a real, it's a real outfit you got from a real like what Tudor place? Where do you go to get that outfit? From? I went to to an outfit called Portland Brevels. They're a wonderful theater company in town, and I and I asked them if they had Tudor costumes, and they said yes. They were only too happy to. I don't think a lot of people go asking for Tudor <laughs> outfits, and I got to visit them, and and I and I you know picked out what I liked. How do you describe that hat that Jason's wearing? It's kind of, it it, it looks like a foam ring yeah. with a little kind of bit of fabric on the top of it. Is that from the era? No. <laughs> Let me tell you something. This is really comfortable. You look lovely, dear. Thank you. So, Jason, how Thank did you. your 24 hours go, man? It was terrible. It was terrible. It, um, I, what I read is that farming was a big deal back then, and, um, and people, you know, built their houses, and it was typically a wood frame, so I didn't have time to really do that, but... I, ha I did help, and a lot of people, like, um, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, I would be someone who would live on someone else's property, and about two years ago, I helped a friend of mine build a chicken coop, um, and he no longer has the chickens, but he still has the, so I thought, can I just live in your backyard for a day, and he would be like, you know, the, I would be a tenant farmer on his land, and so I would sort of live and work his land, and I slept in the chicken coop. Well, does, does that make him a serf, technically, Ruth? Is that no, no, a we, tenant farmer? Uh, you, mm, yeah, well, we've done away with serfs. Oh, this is post-serf yeah, dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't pleasant. So it you wasn't slept, pleasant. So, you slept in the chicken coop. So, I, yeah, I tried to make, you know, I made myself a little space in there, and it was drafty, as you said. Well, there was, you know, there's, it's missing kind of a wall, uh -huh. um, which That's I didn't really authentic. think about. Mm -hmm. And then I had to work his land, and it rained, and there, you, well, can't, that, like, you see, now that's very true to the fact it was raining. Uh, that's, it was I'm raining in, and yeah, cold. Yeah, I'm impressed. And I couldn't use the internet, and I had to, you know, walk <laughs> his dogs a lot. Was that? Did that come as a shock to you that you couldn't use the internet while living like when a tutor? When I tried Jason? to start taking pictures, I was like, wait, I can't. Why am I doing with the phone? So I had to give up all my things, and I cleared brush. And instead of giving me wages, he gave me uh, food. 
and it was really impossible trying to prepare the food because I didn't. I I did use matches because in the end I had no. Everything was wet, <laughs> and it was cold, and I was upset. So I had to borrow matches. I had to walk the dogs one more time to get matches so I could cook this miserable food. My bread got wet. So it, I mean, it was terrible. And he wouldn't. He really took advantage of me. Aww. Was that sort of the end of it? You just uh, you eventually just finished your day out and just sulked away from the chicken coop. Yeah, I did it. I'll be honest. I didn't go the full twenty four. <laughs> I I I gave up. I mean, I gave it a good couple hours. Then I went home and ate a pizza and took a shower. How close did he get, Ruth Goodman? Oh, I mean, obviously nowhere near. But never mind. <laughs> Well, good try, Jason. And Ruth Goodman, thank you very much for, uh, I don't know, adjudicating Jason's attempts at tutordom. Her new book is How to Be a Tutor. like what you are hearing and you're listening to us on the radio or maybe you're here at Mississippi Studios, how's about you take a moment and subscribe to our podcast? It is, of course, free. It allows you 24-hour access to me uh, telling embarrassing stories about myself and sniffing people's laundry that may or may not have been washed using real detergent. Uh, You can find out more about it over at LiveWireRadio.org or iTunes or Stitcher or any of those kinds of places. This is LiveWire Radio coming to you from Portland, Oregon. We will be right back. Hey there, it's Luke. You might already know this, but in case you didn't, Livewire is actually a nonprofit. That's right. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, to keep this little radio show going. Consider becoming a member of our League of Extraordinary Listeners and support this show, which connects you to the artists, music, and comedy that we know you love. You can find out more by visiting livewireradio.org. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. The last Artful Dodger has been making noise here in Portland as a rapper and performer. My favorite song of hers is probably Pestilent Intestines, which she recorded in a bathroom. It's about intestinal problems. We've specifically asked her not to perform that song, but she's got something else really good for us. Please welcome the last Artful Dodger to Livewire. Hi there. Hello. How you doing, Luke? So I got into the Uber today to come over here, and the driver said, what kind of music do you like? And I said, uh, I like hip-hop. And she said, I have the greatest playlist. The person I just drove recommended a playlist for me, and she's some kind of rap person. I think her <laughs> name is Dodger something. I rode in the same car you were in and listened to the playlist that you selected for this random Uber driver. You rode with Anna. I got to know her. Yeah, she's the homie. That was a really good playlist you put together. That wasn't me. That was actually Spotify that put it together. But you are on that playlist, right? I am. (laughs) She's told me that you said, I would like this playlist even if I wasn't on it, but by the way, I am on it. But by the way. (laughs) What is the hip-hop scene like here in Portland? You know, some would say it's non-existent, and I would say that's not the truth at all. There are well, so you many. Exist, so I exist. That Boston argues exists. against that. There are so many like talented artists here that are killing it, and that just don't have the exposure yet. So, as soon as we put them on, 
everybody will know about Portland. And the hip hop scene is pretty amazing. Not gonna lie. I saw a performance of yours where you started by clapping your hands in the air with a bunch of talcum powder, yes. like LeBron does. Like the king, absolutely. It inspired me to start doing that just before like household <laughs> tasks. Like I would love to see an accountant or somebody working at Jimmy John's just do that right before they make a sandwich. <laughs> that must fill you with like power when you do that before a show. That's like yeah. the most badass move. It is, it's why I've only done it once because <laughs> I have never felt that powerful again. <laughs> Um, how about we talk about the song that we're going to hear? What are we going to hear? Um, this is called This Digital Island. It's going to be on my Fresh Selects project dropping sometime this year. All right. Let's take a listen. This is the last Artful Dodger. This Digital Island here on Livewire. Never felt nothing like this before. Never felt nothing like this before, you. Never felt nothing like you before, this, before, this, before, these digital islands. Tropical go vibing, cooling with my dudes. Natural selection, glad that me found you. Boy, you found me, yeah, we found me, that's cool. Said it already, I think I'm nervous, I'm ready, I'm prima donna, like a virgin, no regretting, already left our pajamas on the sand beneath the blankets, and it's warm enough for stricken. Agreed that was the right thing to do, while overnight it makes it complicated, or serious implies an obligation. Well, I've been waiting on this wave today when I'm impatient. I'm a painted out the pepper, can't prescribe a drug that I would take to get me over you, I know I'm stubborn, so are you, you. All right. Starful Dodger, right here on Livewire Radio. Hey, if you're going to be in St. Paul, Minnesota next week, if you're even going to be in Minneapolis, which I hear is a twin city of St. Paul, you should come see us record our show March 16th live at the Fitzgerald Theater. Tom Bodet is going to be there. We're going to have Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges our musical guest is the Jayhawks. It's gonna be amazing. You can find out more at livewireradio.org. This week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. It's practically spring, and New Belgium is kicking off the new season with a brand new beer, Side Trip. What is Side Trip? It's a beer that pays homage to its Belgian roots, and we're not talking about waffles. Although I would drink that, actually. That sounds kind of awesome. Find out more at newbelgium.com. All right, here we are at the end of the show. This is the part where 
I actually go down in the audience here at Mississippi Studios and find a person or persons to tell me what we've learned in the last hour. What's your name, ma'am? Lisa. What, uh, what do you think you picked up in the last hour? Um, I learned that I am a total wuss and I could not live in the Tudor age. <laughs> it's, well, it's too cold. That would be the biggest problem for you, not the lack of dental care, not the <laughs> beheadings, not it would be that it was too cold. The cold would be it for me. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, what is your name, young lady? Madeline. Madeline, how old are you? 13. Uh, where do you go to school, Madeline? Portland Village School. That sounds fancy. <laughs> it's a public Waldorf school. They have public Waldorf schools here? Yeah. Wow. Okay, what have you learned in the last hour of being here at Livewire? That there's a lot of cool hip-hop music in Portland. That you didn't know about? What's your name? Michaela. What did you learn in the last hour? I learned that my whole life has been a lie because you don't need detergent. Your whole life has been a lie because of that? <laughs> Pretty much. How much of your life revolves around laundry? <laughs> I just could have been saving a lot of money, I guess. Are you actually considering going home and, and now washing your clothes sans detergent? I might look into it. <laughs> this has been a real blow to the detergent industry, <laughs> I think, this show. And that is, I guess, what we've learned in the last hour. All right. <laughs> Let's tell you who helped make this show possible. Our guests were Rebecca Traster, Ruth Goodman, and the last Artful Dodger. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Jim Brunberg is our producer and editor. Laura Hatton is our producer. Our announcer and writer is Jason Rouse. Our guest writer of the show was Caitlin Warehouser. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom. And A. Walker Spring, Molly Pettit is our technical director. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Big thanks to Portland Revels for the Tudor costume that Jason wore. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. A special so long for now to our esteemed producer, editor, band member, and amazingly energetic ball of human creativity, Jim Brunberg. He'll be out with his kids working on his new podcast, Rome Schooled, which you can check out at romeschooled.com. Thanks, Jim, we heart you. To find out more about our show, including old episodes, head over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read 
on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>